way, um, a number of years ago in my life, uh, I started to raise kind of a, a theological question. And the theological question that I began to wrestle with was, what does it mean to be extraordinary in God's eyes? Now, I think that that's a very important question that you ought to be asking yourself from time to time. What does it mean to be extraordinary, not in the world's eyes, not under the world's definition of what extraordinary is, but what does it mean to be extraordinary in God's eyes? Because at the end of the day, every single one of us are going to stand before God, and we're going to have to give an accounting for our lives, and it matters if our lives are viewed as extraordinary by God. It matters. It matters for the day of judgment. And, and, and listen to me. I, I think that uh, this is a question that, that, should, that, that should pop up from time to time for you. And the, and the first time that it popped up for me, that, it, that I really began to wrestle with that question, was on a missions trip my junior year of college. So here I was. I was a, I was a junior at uh, Penn State University, and we had a campus ministry organization that I was a part of there. And the campus ministry staff organized a trip to Belize. Now, if you've never been to Belize, it is a country just south of Mexico, so I knew nothing about it before I went on my first trip there. Uh, but Belize is a country that is technically in third world poverty. They are kind of like at the top of the third world and are trying to emerge forward. They're kind of a country that's in transition right now. But I got to go on this trip my junior year, and it was the first time in my life that I had ever been around very significant levels of poverty. You know, I had grown up in a middle class family, and so it's not like I hadn't been around any poverty at all in my world, but I had never seen anything like what I saw in Belize. And so here I am, and while I'm on the ground that year, um, that it was during our spring break, God begins to do a work in my heart and in my life. And one of the things that really began to radically shift me and change me and move in me in some way was when I got to spend a day of that missions trip shadowing some of the Belizean women and seeing what their lives looked like. So here were all these college students, and we were all on different projects. Some of us were building water towers. Some of us were helping to reconstruct um, walls and schools. And, and, and we got to kind of shift around to projects. And there was this one day where I got to shadow these women. And these Belizean women that I got to be with were absolutely extraordinary women. And I'm convinced that in God's eyes, they were living extraordinary lives. Now, they had nothing that the world would say was extraordinary. They were not wealthy. They will never be known. Their names will never go down in history outside of their own little village and community. But these women, I'm telling you, absolutely love Jesus with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. And they were committed to advancing the kingdom of heaven with their lives. So we got to shadow them. And, and, and the way that Belizean culture would work is that the men would go to one of two places during the day. They would either go to the factories to work or they would go to the fields to work. So there was sugar cane everywhere all over the whole country, and almost everybody was a sugar cane farmer. And the women would stay home, and they would have these little concrete houses with, you know, concrete block that I'm talking these houses were maybe, maybe a little bigger than this stage, maybe slightly larger. These were, these were very, very, very modest homes. Now, by comparison to what people live in in places like Haiti, that was luxury palace. But, but, but for comparison to what we live in in America, it was almost nothing. And these women would, would spend all day, they would be baking bread all day, getting food ready all day to be able to feed their family because they didn't have a Walmart you could just drive to to get whatever you wanted. But man, when I got to spend a day with them, 
They talked about Jesus. They loved Jesus. They knew Jesus. They wanted his kingdom to advance forward. And I'm telling you, I came back off of that trip, and I just had to start wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be extraordinary in God's eyes? Well, I think that God defines extraordinary very differently than we do as human beings. He has a very different definition of extraordinary. And I think that God wants every one of us to be extraordinary in his eyes. And I also believe that God is going to give an incredible reward to people who do not live ordinary lives, but actually live extraordinary lives for Jesus. So, so that started a searching in my life, which led me to a number of places in the Bible where I began to discover in God's word that God promises that there is a reward coming for extraordinary now, one of the passages that I read early on in my journey, and this one just, just moved me in such a, such a, a deep way, was 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in, in verses 11 through 15. It starts off with this. The Apostle Paul said, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you and I have a foundation in our lives. If we've come to know Christ as our Savior, we have a foundation in our lives. That foundation is Jesus. We cannot lay another foundation. We build everything in our life is supposed to be built on the foundation of Jesus. But Paul then goes on in this passage, and he starts to talk about the kind of lives that we build on top of the foundation of Christ and how God is going to respond to different types of lives that are built on the foundation of Jesus. And so verse 12, Paul says this. The Apostle Paul writes, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what... Sir, has been built, survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. You know, that passage is one of the passages that when that, that, that I, I, I learned and, and that I think God took me to in the scriptures when I, when I had, after that Belizean trip, and I started to wrestle with what does it really mean to be extraordinary in God's eyes? And what the Apostle Paul is saying there is, is he's saying that, you know, of all the people who are Christians, we, we know the difference between people who are, are Jesus-following and not Jesus-following, the, the, the difference between people who know Christ as their Savior and don't. At, at the judgment seat of Christ, that is the, whether or not we know Jesus and have been saved is the defining thing over whether or not we enter the kingdom of heaven or whether or not we pay for our own sins in hell. So, so every person gets to decide, am I going to pay for my sins or is Jesus going to pay for my sins? But among the category of people who know Jesus and have been saved from their sins, Paul says it's, it, it's not all equal. Because some of those people, some of us in this room, are people who build lives of gold and silver and costly stones. And other people are people who build on the foundation of Jesus in their lives with wood and hay and straw. And so someday, all of us, we're all going to stand in the presence of God. 
And we're all going to give an accounting for our lives. And God is going to test our life with fire. And some people are going to have the experience of watching everything they've done with their life burn up in front of them. And they are still going to enter the kingdom of heaven because they had put their faith in Jesus. They knew Jesus. They were saved. But unfortunately, they spent their entire lives focusing on themselves. So they didn't focus on the advancement of God's kingdom. And they didn't, they didn't uh, focus on, on loving Jesus and knowing him deeply and serving him well. They focused on me, myself, and I, their whole lives. And now everything that they had built disintegrates in front of them. And they enter the kingdom of heaven actually with a sense of loss because of what they had done with their lives. Now, Pathway, I don't want to be that person. I want to be somebody who's built my life with gold and silver and costly stones. Somebody who, when God tests the quality of my life that is built on the foundation of Jesus, that what gets revealed by the fire, there's not a burning up of the fire, there's a revealing of, of, of a life well lived for Jesus. And then Paul says in this passage, there's a great reward for the builder. So one builder enters the kingdom of heaven with a sense of loss. Another builder enters the kingdom of heaven with a great reward from God because of what they have done with their life. Now, Pathway, listen to me. I'm telling you, the extraordinary people in this world are the ones who are building with gold and silver and costly stones. They are people who love Jesus every single day. They are people who seek him and pursue him. There are people who advance the kingdom of heaven in whatever arena God has asked them to advance it. This isn't just something for pastors and missionaries and Bible teachers and seminary professors. You can build your life with gold and silver and costly stone as an executive in a company or a teacher or a doctor or a plumber or a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. You can advance the kingdom of heaven in whatever way God has asked you to do in your particular arena, and you can build your life with gold and silver and costly stones. And this is what it means to be truly extraordinary in God's eyes and there's a reward coming for it now we are here today on week number five of this series called ordinary to extraordinary this is a six-part series so we wrap the whole thing up next week and then we move into a different direction we have been following the life of Peter so Peter started out very very ordinary he started out as an ordinary fisherman and probably, in many ways, very well may have been a guy who had he entered into the presence of, of the Lord at the stage of life when, God first, when Jesus first met him, Peter's life very well may have been a life at that stage of wood and hay and straw. Now, we don't know for sure what kind of life Peter was living. We just know that he had a fishing business. But, but you know, we don't know. Like, was he, was he building a, a life that, that was going to withstand the judgment seat of Christ or not? We don't know, but, but in every way, Peter was very, very ordinary at that stage. And throughout this journey, what we've seen is that Peter has been on this transition into becoming an extraordinary person. Again, not extraordinary in the world's eyes. Extraordinary in God's eyes. 
So he parks his fishing business up on the shore, leaves everything behind, follows Jesus. Later on, Jesus walks across a lake at him. He walks on water. Later on, there are stories we didn't get to tell. He goes up on a mountainside, sees Jesus transformed before him. Later on, gets sent out two by two with, with other disciples, with the power of God. Later on, declares Jesus to be the Messiah. Later on, and this was last week's message, has an incredible fall. So he, so he plummets, starting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he almost lops off the head of the servant of the high priest when they arrested Jesus. And then he turns around and he denies Jesus three times. So we follow this whole trajectory of Peter, his ups and, and, then, his, and then his extreme downs. And we kind of left it there last week. Well, today, we're going to advance the story. I've got two more weeks of advancing the story for you. And today, we're going to be out of the Gospels. We're no longer going to be in, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're now moving on to the book of Acts. Because the first half of the book of Acts, much of it tells the story of Peter's influence on the early church. Now, to take us into the book of Acts and to continue his story, I've got, I got to fill in some gaps for you between the end of John's Gospel, when Peter has fallen, and, and the beginning of the book of Acts, when Peter is going to become the leader of the early church. So here, here's what happens in that gap of time for Peter. Okay, so Jesus dies on the cross. He is crucified during the Passover festival in Jerusalem. He, of course, is buried in a grave, and three days later, he rises from that grave. This is what we celebrate every Easter. Jesus now spends a 40-day period of time on earth, revealing himself to all kinds of people, before he will eventually be taken up into heaven. It's called the ascension, before he'll be taken up to heaven before God. So in that 40 days, Jesus is revealing himself, and this revelation of the resurrected Christ is the event that starts launching the church forward. It's the thing that launches the church. So he, he reveals himself several times to his disciples. And there's three recorded revealings of himself. One of them came to all of his disciples at a meal. One of them came to Thomas, who had doubted that he had really risen from the dead. And then another one came on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So Peter and his buddies, after Jesus had died and was gone, they didn't know what to do. So they went back to the fishing business. Did you, what, what do they do? Their Lord is gone. They've, they've got to earn an income. They've got to have some kind of lifestyle. What are they going to do? That, so they go back to fishing. Jesus shows up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and, and tells Peter to throw his nets down the other side. Peter does, and he hauls up, in John's gospel, a very specific number. 153 large fish are hauled up when his net goes down. He jumps out of his boat, swims to shore. The other guys bring the boats up to shore. And when they get on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, it is there that Jesus restores Peter. So he fully forgives him for his failures and his flaws and everything he's done wrong. And he restores him back into ministry. So now that the rest of that 40 days progresses and we open up the book of Acts in chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus basically says, okay, peace out. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, but I got to go now. I'm summarizing. And, and, they, and, and God just takes Jesus. Jesus ascends into heaven. So he's gone. So now you just have, all you have left is 120 Christians. You have the 12 disciples who make up 
uh, well, I guess there's 11 disciples at this time because Judas was gone. So you got the 11 disciples and then you got everybody else. It's about 120 people. They start meeting in an upper room to pray because they don't know what to do. So a lot of us scholars believe that the upper room they met in is probably the same upper room in Jerusalem where they had gone for the final supper with Jesus just 40 days earlier. So they go to this upper room, they start praying, and what they do is they pray for 10 straight days. Now at the end of those 10 days, there's now another festival going on in Jerusalem. So you had the Passover festival 50 days earlier, and now 50 days later you have this thing called the, the Pentecost festival. So Pentecost meant 50 days, and it's 50 days removed. And so what happens during Pentecost is, is people from all over the world gather back into Jerusalem again. They, like, like people come on pilgrimages and trips from all over the world. So Jerusalem fills up with people again, just like it had 50 days earlier when Christ was crucified. These believers are in the upper room praying, and all of a sudden they hear what sounds like a crazy, violent, blowing wind. And the Spirit of the Lord gets poured out on that prayer meeting. God's Spirit separates in the top of the room over everybody in what looked like tongues of fire. So can you imagine like, like looking up and like there's a, like a fiery tongue in the air and there's, there's like 120 of them and these tongues come down and they rest on everybody in that prayer meeting and suddenly everybody in that prayer meeting instantaneously can speak a language they've never spoken before. So they flood out of the upper room. They go into the streets of Jerusalem where the Pentecost festival is going on and, and they run out and now they're speaking all these languages and people are hearing their native tongues being spoken and they shouldn't have heard those tongues because they figured nobody in Jerusalem knows my native language yet they're hearing people speak in their native tongues so now a massive crowd of people gather around the Christians they can't figure out what's going on so this humongous crowd of people gathers and Peter stands up in that moment and he preaches his first ever recorded sermon now he had never up to that moment spoken a sermon in his life no public speaker training. Nobody taught him how to use an illustration. <laughs> right? He, he, he doesn't have a Bible in front of him. I mean, they only had the Old Testament at that point. The New Testament was still going to be written. And so he's, he's got no materials, no illustration, no training. He just stands up in front of the people and he starts to preach. And what happens on that message is unbelievable. He gets to the end. The, the message is recorded in Acts chapter 2. He gets to the end of that message in, in, in chapter 2 and verse 40, uh, says that this is what happened to Peter. It says, with many other words, he warned them, this big crowd of people. He, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. you got to be kidding me. You know, as a fellow preacher, can I just tell you that a spirit of jealousy comes over me when I read this? <laughs> Do you know how many sermons I've preached? And I've never had this happen in one of the sermons that i preached. This guy stands up with no training, no, just is given a supernatural ability to speak in that moment. And God moves and people just begin repenting all around him, falling on their faces before God. Not only do 3,000 of them come to Christ, 3,000 of them get up and say, I'm ready to be baptized right now. 
and they baptize them. They baptize all these people. <laughs> Guys, listen, I remember my first recorded sermon, okay? The first time I ever preached, I preached in a church in Indiana uh, where I was, I was serving in, in a leadership role there, but I was not on staff, and our pastor had to travel, and he asked me if I would speak. It was my first recorded sermon. Can I just tell you, you know what I did? I didn't win 3,000 people to Christ. I spoke 3,000 miles an hour. That's what I did. Because I was so nervous standing in front of people for my first time. I just got up and just, you know, I mean, I was done in like 12 minutes. But one of my best friends had to say to me, dude, you're a good speaker. You got to slow down a little bit up on the platform. And, but he, Peter was just given the power of God and all these people repent. So now, what, what I want you to see that has happened here now in a story is, is, is that the evolution of Peter's life it has happened right before our eyes. He started out very, very ordinary. He started out probably as a normal, ordinary Jewish man who thought he could earn his way to God through lots of Jewish customs and traditions, because that's how the Jews kind of viewed the law of God. So he was probably building his life with what the Apostle Paul would later say was wood and hay and straw. The kind of life that if he were to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he'd be saved, but he would not, uh, but he would enter the kingdom with, with loss because, because everything in his life burned up before him. It's probably the kind of life Peter had when we met him at the beginning of the Gospels. And now here we are three years later, and suddenly this guy is, is lurched into leadership of the early church. So he's not a trained communicator. He's not even a trained leader. He's not a trained leader. And there's thousands of people that have come to Christ. And, and so now he now has to figure out with the other disciples, how do we organize this chaos? So we've got 3,000 people with no building, no money, no communication system, no leaders. How do we organize a church of 3,000 people when we got nothing to work with other than just the Holy Spirit? And that's what they do. They start organizing it. And now Peter has moved from ordinary to extraordinary because now, three years later, he is deeply in love with Jesus. He is all in on Jesus. And not only is he all in, he is committed to advancing the kingdom of heaven in his lifetime. This guy is now extraordinary. He's now living the kind of life that if his life were to stand before God at that moment, that God would reveal gold and silver and precious stones in the quality of his life because he's all about Jesus and all about the kingdom of heaven. Pathway, this evolution of a life, it can happen to you too. It's not just for Peter. God's going to put a very different calling on your life than he's going to put on Peter's. He is not going to call you most likely to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, he may not even call you into what would be considered vocational ministry. But God has a very specific assignment for you that he wants you to live out and he wants you to love him every single day and be committed to your unique assignment in the kingdom and to push the kingdom of heaven forward. That is what extraordinary is in God's eyes. And you can undergo this evolution of a life in the same way that Peter did. 
So the story now continues. Here's how it goes from there. So, so first recorded sermon, Acts chapter 2. Now we get into Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking up to the temple in Jerusalem. There's a man who is being carried on a mat because he, he is lame from the waist down. He cannot walk. This man every day gets carried on a mat, gets set at the base of the steps that would lead up into the temple. This man begs people for food and begs people for money every day. Peter and John are walking to the temple in Jerusalem, passing the man. He begs them while he's being carried on the mat. Peter looks at him in Acts chapter 3 and says, I don't have any money, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. The man's legs instantaneously are healed. His ankles reconnect. His feet position themselves the right way right there in that moment. The man jumps off of the mat races into the temple, goes in and is just praising God in the temple court, just, just squealing, screaming, just crying, weeping in the temple courts. Everybody in the temple courts recognizes him because that's the guy who begs them for money every time they come to the temple. So they are, what is going on? So they go ask the man, what's going on? He points to Peter. That guy told me that Jesus could heal me. So here's Peter now standing in the temple courts. Again, no training, no training on how to be a public communicator. So he speaks his second recorded sermon. This is number two. Now, I don't know if he had a bunch of sermons between the one in Acts chapter 2 and the one in Acts chapter 3, but this is the second recorded sermon. He stands up and he preaches to everybody. And what happens when he does that is in chapter 4, verse 4, look, look at this. It says, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. He now has 5,000 men in Jerusalem who have believed the gospel. And these ancient people, you know, they didn't count the women and the children, which aren't you glad that we've changed that practice, right? I mean, can you imagine if we came to church, we're like, hey, everybody's so exciting. We've got 100 men in church today. No mention of the women and the children. That's how they counted in, in the Bible. But so, so the 5,000 men, you've got to add all the, all the wives who've come to Christ, all the children who've come to Christ. We have now tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem who have now come to Jesus. This has been an explosion of the gospel. And it is this explosion that launches Christianity throughout the world. Because later on, in Acts chapter 8, a persecution would break out. The Christians would get ejected from Jerusalem, and they would go everywhere to run from persecution. And they would carry the gospel, and they would start churches in every town and every city they landed in. And this, if you want to know how did Christianity get off the ground, this is it. Jesus rose from the dead. They believed it. They saw his power. And then they got scattered by God. And they took the gospel everywhere. And this is why you and I today are in a church where we can hear and know and learn about Jesus because of what happened. But the point of this story is to help you to understand we've seen the evolution now of Peter's life from ordinary to extraordinary. He's now gone from a life that's being built on wood and hay and straw, and he's building a life of gold and silver and precious stones. Now, the question that I think that we all ought to be wrestling with and wondering with is, how do I do that? Can that same thing happen in my life? Could I move from ordinary to extraordinary 
in God's eyes so that someday I would be greatly rewarded in the kingdom of heaven for the kind of life that I've lived before God. Well, Pathway, listen to me. There is an answer. I believe there's an answer in the text that shows us how this happened for Peter. It, there's an answer that, that it, it, we get a revelation that shows us what was the defining characteristic, what was the defining thing that caused Peter to make this movement in his life over three years. So the story goes like this. In chapter 4 now, Peter and John get arrested. So the Jewish leaders come charging in with Roman guards into those temple courts. They arrest Peter, but they don't know what to do with them because they can't just, like, punish him. They've got a massive crowd of people who are going to revolt if they do. So they arrest him, and they put him on trial, and the goal of their trial is to try to intimidate he and John and get them to stop talking about Jesus. So they call them before them on this trial. The trial is recorded in Acts chapter 4, and of course, Peter and John are like, we're going to keep talking about Jesus, just deal with it, right? I mean, that's how the trial basically goes. But there's this moment in the trial where the Jewish leaders observe something, and what they observe, I think, for you and I, is the defining thing that moved Peter from ordinary to extraordinary. So this is the thing, if you want to know how did this movement take place in his life, what we're about to read is the reason. So here he is on trial. Chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they, that is the Jewish leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And Pathway, that is the difference isn't it? What made Peter extraordinary was not his talent. It wasn't his insight. It wasn't his wisdom. It wasn't his money. It wasn't the size of his job. It wasn't any of that. What made Peter extraordinary was that he had been with Jesus. People who spend time with Jesus become extraordinary over time. Not extraordinary in the world's eyes. Extraordinary in God's eyes. People who spend time with Jesus fall in love with Jesus. People who spend time with Jesus worship Jesus. People who spend time with Jesus get committed and all in to the mission of Jesus. People who spend time with Jesus advance the kingdom of heaven forward in whatever way they can because of their time with him. And so, Pathway, I want to ask you something. My, my question to you is this. Have you been with Jesus? Now, I'm not asking if you're saved. Most of you in this room would say, yes, I'm saved. I've, I've repented of my sins and I've asked Jesus to forgive me. I'm saved. I understand most of you in this room are saved. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, have you been with Jesus? Because if you've been with Jesus... Your life is going to progress. There will be an evolution in your life over time that moves you from ordinary, a life of building wood and hay and straw, a life that's all about me, 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 my world, my world, my world, what I want, what I'm going to do with my life. And God will move you from that kind of person into this extraordinary life of being a lover of God through Christ, building the kingdom of heaven. So my question again is, have you been with Jesus? And if you haven't been spending time with Jesus, you can start today. 
I would love to see everybody in this church a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, living extraordinary lives in God's eyes, lives of gold and silver and costly stones, because we have been in the habit of spending time with Jesus. So practically speaking, Pathway, that means opening up our Bibles and asking God to speak through his word to us. That means spending time on our own time in our lives in worship, not just waiting for Sundays for worship, but actually worshiping on our own time. That means learning how to build a prayer life and spending time with Christ and, and asking Christ to teach us how to pray. That's what it means. Spend time with Jesus and your life will advance from ordinary to extraordinary. I'm going to pray for you and ask that God would do this work in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for everybody in this room and I pray that we would progress from ordinary to extraordinary. Jesus, do your work in us. Do your work in us. Help us, God, to build lives that matter, lives that count, lives that someday when they're tested by the fire will be revealed for the goodness of what they are. And everybody stay with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Maybe you walked into this room today and maybe you've never invited Jesus into your life. If that's the case, then I want to tell you, you can... You can change and you can turn your heart to Christ today. Right now, you can pray with me to receive Jesus into your life. So just, just join me in prayer. Would you pray with me now if you're ready to turn to Christ? Lord Jesus, would you please come into my life? I want to be saved. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. So Jesus, I'm inviting you in. Would you please come into my life right now? Now guys, if you're praying that prayer, if you're inviting Jesus in, nobody's looking around, but I am. And I would like to know if you're praying to receive Jesus. Would you put your hand nice and high in the air if you've invited Christ into your life today? Has anybody prayed that prayer to receive Jesus? Okay, okay, amen, amen.